All right, good evening. Hey, if you got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. If you have a Bible with you, Luke chapter 2 uh, is where we're going to be this evening as we jump into our teaching. Um, so Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be. I'll, I'll be honest with you, this is kind of like this odd time of year um, when you're in church, where, where, where if you kind of show up to church this time of year around December, what you're going to find is we're going to kind of talk about the same stories over and over and over again. See, see here's the story of Jesus. Jesus is born, and, and the story of Jesus' birth is really only covered in two books of the Bible. In the Gospel of Mark, if you don't know this, it really just jumps from like, this is Jesus and suddenly he's an adult. In the Gospel of John, you hear about this pre-incarnate Jesus who becomes flesh, but you don't really get the story of the nativity. So all of the stories that are on your Christmas cards or in your Christmas pageants are going to be found in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And so what we tend to do around Christmas time is we tend to tell the same story over and over and over and over again. And we tell this story over and over and over again. And sometimes as pastors, we want to try to be clever or do something different. But then here's what we need to recognize. We don't actually need to tell a different story this Christmas time. We just need to go back and keep telling the old story over and over and over and over again. And here's why. Because this is true of your life, even if you're not a Christian. I don't assume everyone here is a Christian tonight, but this is true for your family. This is true for your life. Do you realize that families are shaped by the stories they tell? Like, do you get that about your family? Your family is actually shaped not just by the actions you do, but by the stories you tell. And so if your family's anything like my family, there is probably some series of stories that gets told and retold over and over and over and over again. Like you were at Thanksgiving this last week, and you told the story of the one time you got on the plane, but they forgot the bag, and that happened, right? And it's like the hundredth time you've heard that story from your mom, but you tell the story over and over and whether it is good stories or tragic stories or disappointing stories or heartbreaking stories, families are shaped by the stories they tell. And the same thing is true with the family of God, that we as a church, we as a people are shaped by the stories we tell. And so tonight, and really for the next few weeks, we're going to turn back to the Christmas story. And we're going to be shaped by this story. We're going to see how God moves in the midst of the story. And as we return, not to a brand new story, but to an old story that gets told over and over and over again, God is going to continue to shape us. Not because it's new information, but because every time we encounter the story of God, God encounters us. And it changes us. And it moves in us. And so tonight we're going to look at the story of Christmas. We're going to look at the story in Luke chapter 2. If I were to ask you to turn to the Christmas story, you probably think uh, we're going to look at the story of Mary or maybe the story of Elizabeth or the story of Jesus or the shepherds or the magi. And those are all good stories. And we'll get to those stories. But tonight I want to look at Luke chapter 2, and really even next week we're going to look at another part of Luke chapter 2. And in these two weeks we're going to look at two stories that, that maybe you haven't actually heard as often in the Christmas story. It is part of Jesus' life. Jesus is born. Eight days later he is brought to the temple. He is presented at the temple of God. And next week we'll see an interaction with a gentleman named Simeon. And tonight I wanted to show you this story in Luke chapter 2 verse 36. There's only three verses to the story. So I'm going to read the whole story, then walk you through what I think it means for us tonight. Here's Luke chapter 2, verse 36. It says, There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel and the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. 
coming up to them at the very moment, them being Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, coming up to this family, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So, so that's the story of Anna. Nothing more is ever said about her in all of Scripture. And yet tonight, I think this short story is going to be a meaningful thing for us this Christmas as we consider what Anna's story means for us. Um, here's the crazy thing. So um, it, it says that she was married. Uh, and she got married, and, and the average Jewish uh, young lady in that time, the average Jewish girl, would actually be married sometimes at 13, 14. Uh, let's just be conservative here. And she, she got married at 15 years old. So she got married at 15 years old. And then what does it say? She's married to her husband seven years after her marriage, meaning after her marriage, her wedding day, seven years she's married, and then her husband dies. So get this. She's 15 years old. She gets married. She's 22 years old, and her husband dies. She is now 84 years old, 62 years of weeping, of mourning, of grieving, of her husband being gone. Like, she gets married at 15, and she has a vision for her life. And that vision is that she's going to be a mom and maybe a grandma someday. There's going to be this whole life that flourishes in front of her. And then in a moment, at 22 years old, that gets ripped away from her. Like, she is a young adult, she is in her 20s, she is 22 years old, and the vision she has for her life gets ripped away from her. And as we think about that tonight, I think that presents the question I want to try to answer during this sermon, and it's this question. How can you live with purpose when your life hasn't gone as planned? That, that's the question I want to dig into tonight. Uh, like when your life has not gone the way you envisioned it was going to go, when you are like Anna at 22 and something you want or something you believe gets ripped away from you, how do you live with purpose? Uh, like let me land this home for some of you tonight. Like how do you live with purpose when you are single? And there's no problem with being single, but here's what I know is true in this room. There's some of you who are single right now, and you always thought you'd be married by now. You always thought you would have found that someone by now. And again, it's no problem being single. In fact, it can be beautiful being single. But for some of you, the plan in life was by 22, you were going to be married. And now you're 28 and you're going, all right, Lord, what's going to happen here? What happens when you're single? What happens when your career is struggling? And again, there's no problem with your career being struggling. But some of you had a vision that at this point in your life, by this point in your career, you'd be making this much money or be this successful and things just haven't taken off and gone in the direction you hoped they'd go. How do you live a life with purpose when your life has suddenly changed? For some of you, there's been something in your life that's just drastically changed. Maybe you got let go from a job or you weren't able to go back to school. Maybe your parents moved away. Maybe your friend group broke up when life just drastically and suddenly changes. Next, how do you live with purpose when you're dealing with a loss? Uh, like for some of you, it's like Anna, like you've lost someone in your life. Someone has died. Someone has moved away. Someone has just become estranged from you and you no longer have that person in your life. Listen, how do you live with purpose when you're starting in a new place? Uh, like I just imagine some of you are in this place and you've actually just moved here. And you're trying to figure out what goes on and how do you move forward. And you lived in one place and now you're trying to figure it out here. So here's where I think the story of Anna is instructive to you. If life has not gone exactly as you thought it would go, and it's thrown you some curveballs, and it's not exactly been the life you thought it was going to be, how do you continue to live with purpose when life hasn't gone as planned? And here's what I hope we see tonight, that when you surrender your plans to God, God shows you his purpose. When you surrender your plan, your agenda, your path, your thing that you think life has to be, when you lay that down and say, God, whatever you have for me, I'm in on this, that's when God shows up. And God shows you his purpose. Let's walk back through this story again. Verse 36 starts with this. It said, there was also a prophet 
Now, when it says also, it's coming right after the story of Simeon, who again we'll look at in a few weeks here. But it says there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Peniel and the tribe of Asher. Now, now in, the, in the Bible, a prophet is simply someone who speaks for God, someone who reveals God and shows God to the people of God. She is a prophetess. She's one of the prophetesses in the scripture. There's negative prophetesses in the scripture, like Jezebel, who's described as a false, wicked prophet. And then there's Anna here, who is a good, wise prophet of God, who is speaking from God to the people of God. Uh, and you know what's so interesting about Anna here? She was married at 15, probably. She's widowed at 22. She's lived for 62 years as a widow, 62 years in the temple, 62 years as the woman who lost her husband and therefore is seeking after God. But isn't it interesting that Luke, and by the Spirit of God, that God does not call Anna, Anna the widow, Anna the lady who lost her husband. God calls her Anna the prophet. Did you notice that? Do you notice that he doesn't call her by her pain, but rather shows her by her purpose? And that's true for us, that God defines us by our purpose, not by our pain. Like, I need you to know that. Like, whatever pain, whatever loss, whatever thing has been taken from you, that is not how God defines you. That is not how God sees you. Like, to the young lady here who thought she would be married at this point and frustrated around the area of romance in her life, and you just feel like this is this big hole in your heart right now, I want you to know God grieves with you, but he does not define you in that way. God defines you by your purpose and what he's called you toward. To, to the young man in this room who just feels like your life has been a tattered loss uh, of sin and wickedness and brokenness in the sexual area, like, I just know so many young men who that's just been the story of their life up to this point. And so many of them just go, that's all I am. I'm just this messed up, jacked up guy. And God says, I see your sin. I sent Jesus to die for you, but that is not how I define you. Like, I want you to know if you grew up in a messed up home, like so many of you grew up in a home that was just dysfunctional at best and abusive at worst. And I just want you to know our God does not define you by that. Like God looks at you and sees you and says, I define you by your purpose, by what I have called you to do. God looks at Anna and doesn't say, oh, this poor woman who lost her husband. He goes, I'm going to grieve with her, but I'm going to define her by what I've called her to do in this world. So this is the opposite of what Satan wants. Satan wants to use your pain to rob you of your purpose. You know what Satan wants to whisper in your ear? After what you've been through, after what you've done, after what you haven't accomplished, after where you are in life, God will never use you. It's too late. All the great people God used in history, he used at like 18 or 22 or 25. You're past your prime. You might as well give up and throw in the towel. This is what Satan wants to lie to you. Satan wants to use your pain to rob you of your purpose, to say you don't have a purpose. You don't have any use anymore. You might as well give up. But God wants to use your pain to shape your purpose. Like, do you understand this? All of our pain is ending up being this purpose that God is using in our life. And that's not easy because pain is not simple. I just never want to be a preacher who's like, your pain's no big deal. No, your pain is a huge deal. But it's also powerful. And the people I know who have a deep impact on this world are the people who take that pain and leverage that power for the sake of their purpose and the sake of the gospel. What does God do with Anna? He doesn't define her by her pain. He defines her by her purpose. In verse 36, it says she was very old. Remember, she's 84 years old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84 years old. Now, the story of Anna, you know how it goes. She's worshiping, she's praying, she's fasting, she's ministering to people in the temple. She is a prophet of God. And yet what it tells us is the great tragedy of her life happened while she was probably your age. 
She was married. She had a vision for the future. Everything was supposed to be great. I got to imagine she is looking forward to a future. She is married. She's got it all. And then it gets ripped away from her. And and it doesn't say this in the text, but, but I'm certain that if Anna spent 62 years serving the Lord and seeking the Lord and ministering to God's people, what happened is early on in her loss and early on in her tragedy, early on in losing her husband, somewhere along the way, she dealt with that pain rather than buried it or ignored it. Like somewhere along the way, she dealt with the pain, she dealt with the disappointment, she dealt with the frustration, and here's why, and this is true for you, if you don't deal with it, young pain becomes old bitterness. If you don't deal with it, young pain becomes old bitterness. Like I just want you to know, whatever that pain is in your life, whether it's the fact that you're single and you thought you'd be married, whether you grew up in a dysfunctional or abusive home and and it's just still messing with you, listen, I can be sympathetic, I can be deeply empathetic to the pain you've gone through, but I want you to know that pain only compounds if you don't deal with it, if you don't look it in the face, if you don't actually deal with the pain that's going on inside of you. And for some of you, what will happen tragically is you won't deal with that pain You won't actually look it face to face, and you will get to Anna's age. You will be 84 someday, and you will be bitter and resentful at the world. Don't you know 84-year-olds who are bitter and resentful? Don't you know 54-year-olds who are bitter and resentful? I know 34-year-olds who are bitter and resentful, because they just never dealt with young pain. If it's not treated, young pain becomes old resentment, old bitterness. So here's the question, how do you deal with the pain of your youth? Uh, Like, I'm just speaking to a crowd here, and I know some of you have gone through horrific things. For some of you, it was abuse or neglect or betrayal. For others of you, it was like you were dating someone and everything seemed fine and then it broke apart and you have no good reason. For some of you, it was like a dream you had for a life or a business or a venture that fell apart like something fell apart. How do you deal with pain of your youth? How do you deal with it? And and let's just qualify this right now. Um, Some of you won't call your pain pain because someone else's pain is worse. And do you know that no one ever wins the pain Olympics? Like no one ever wins it ever. If you're like, well, I'm not really in pain because she lost her mom when she was a kid. She suffered and so did you. Like, so did you. Like, if you're somewhere in your mind, well, I haven't experienced the loss of a husband, so why should I complain about a boyfriend who betrayed me? The answer is, you can have pain too. Pain is not mutually exclusive. So when you've dealt with loss or frustration or pain, how do you deal with it? And I'm going to give you four steps tonight. Number one, I want you to notice it. Notice it. This is actually the hardest step of all of it. Because what actually happens for us is we get so used to the pain, it's just kind of there. And so there's the simmering, underlying resentment that just kind of sits in the bottom of our soul. And we don't notice it because we're too busy, and we don't notice it because noticing it is too painful. So we just continue on with our life. Like some of you numb it to the point where you don't notice it by always having the, I almost said the radio, like who listens to the radio, right? <laughs> always having like headphones in, always having like your, your phone playing something. You always have something on in the car. You always turn the TV on when you get home. There's never moments of silence because moments of silence will bring you face to face with your pain. And, and for some of you, you just haven't noticed it. And, and I just want to call you tonight to notice like, hey, this hurt. And it may not have been the biggest hurt in the entire world, but it bummed me out. Or actually, I've never really even come face to face with the fact that I'm kind of disappointed with the way my career has gone. I always thought I'd be here, but I'm kind of here and I'm frustrated and that hurts. You notice it. What's the second thing you do? You name it. You name it out loud. I've said this a million times. What you do not identify will only intensify. What you do not name in your life, you will never be able to tame. 
And once I put words to it, once I say it out loud, it stops having a grip and a hold on my life. For some of you, you kind of look back on your childhood and you're like, yeah, it was tough. You know what you might need to be able to say? My mom let me down. My dad walked out on me. That guy betrayed me and broke my heart. I had an opportunity in this area and those friends didn't come through for me the way I thought they would. Like you need to name it out loud with as much specific clarity as you can. Skirting around it or kind of being vague about it never solves anything. How do we deal with the pain of our youth? You notice it, you name it. Number three, you understand it. You come to understand it. You know what understanding it looks like? For some of you, you grew up in like a dysfunctional and di- difficult household. Maybe you grew up in a household where every time you disagreed with anyone, it got tense. So what you've actually done the rest of your life is you've been perfectly agreeable and never stood up for yourself and never set boundaries. And what you need to do is connect the dots between your past and your present. But for some of you, your dad was abusive and horrible to you. And, and so for you, any authority figure, maybe even every male figure in this world, is abusive and horrible. And it is so understandable where that comes from. But when you can start to understand that, you can start to have mastery over it. You can start to no longer be controlled by the pain of your youth. Like for some of you, you've been let down by guys or girls that you were trying to date so many times that you actually don't even want to throw your hat in the ring anymore because you'd rather be alone than be disappointed again. Understand it. You notice it. You name it out loud. You understand where it's coming through and how much, how it's stirring up pain. And then here's the final thing we go and maybe the most important step. The most important thing is that after you know it, understand it, name it, study it, understand it, is that you forgive it. That you forgive it. But like this is the shocking and amazing thing that God gives us the capacity to do. But like this is so incredible. I love, love this idea that forgiveness is the only way to heal the wounds of a past we cannot change. And for some of you, it was your family, it was an ex-boyfriend, it was a friend, it was someone in your world, a boss, someone in your life who just let you down, who disappointed you, who hurt you. And that will never change, it will never go away. You cannot for a moment change the past, but you can heal the wounds of a past that you cannot change. And so what do we want to do? Like Anna, again, it doesn't say that she did this. I just have to conjecture that if she lives 62 more years serving the Lord, somewhere along the way, she noticed her pain, she named it, she understood it. And she actually went through the process of healing it, of grieving it, of moving on from it. It goes on this way in back half of verse 36. It says, she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And so this is amazing about Anna. She goes through this incredible loss. Life has not gone the way she thought it was going to go. Things went totally sideways on her. And here's what I've observed throughout my ministry career. When this happens, people tend to do one of two things. Some people run away from God. They just book it. They get as far away from God as they can because if this happened to me, God can't possibly be good because God's goodness is only contingent on me not having to suffer. And then others use the opportunity of their pain to run into the arms of their loving father. And that's what Anna does. Like look what it says, she never left the temple. 62 years, six decades of worshiping day and night, fasting and praying. Notice what it doesn't say she does. She doesn't sit around lingering and dwelling on it and sitting in her pain and resenting what happened and being bitter. She doesn't sit around wondering if something could have been different or what would life look like if it wasn't that. It's not that she didn't grieve. She had to grieve, but she didn't dwell. And I just think for so many of us, what happens is when we lose out on something we thought we were gonna have, We dwell on it. We think on it. We overthink on it. And here's what I want you to know, that overthinking and dwelling amplifies your pain. That's all it's ever done for you. 
When you sit around dwelling on things that disappointed you, that frustrated you, plans that didn't materialize or pain you've walked in, it's good to reflect, it's good to understand, but when I dwell, when I overthink, it amplifies my pain. But here's what I want you to know the lesson from Anna is that fasting and prayer reveals your purpose. It reveals your purpose in the midst of that pain. So that you've gone through something and it hurt and it wasn't pleasant and it wasn't the plan you had for your life. But God has put you through it. But when you choose, instead of dwelling and overthinking, you choose to step into fasting and prayer. Two very specific things, fasting and prayer. God will reveal to you, this is why you went through this. This is your purpose. Here's what I have for you next. Step into it. Fasting and prayer reveal our purpose. So here's what we're going to do. I want to get really practical tonight. Uh, I want to talk about if you've gone through something. You're dealing with some pain. Life hasn't gone as planned. You're frustrated that you're single. You're frustrated about your career. You're frustrated about what's going on in life. You feel like you have to start over. You feel stalled out in life. There's two things. There's two things I want you to learn in 2023. Like as we close out December here, like we're going to sneeze and it's going to be January, right? So like here we go, 2023. Two things I want you to learn. Two things I want you to master. Number one, learn to pray. Learn to pray in 2023. We are doing an initiative here at Calvary uh, where we are going to bathe every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month of 2023 in prayer. There are going to be men and women from Calvary, hundreds of them are signed up already, to be part of a movement praying here at Calvary for the future of our church, for the future of the gospel witness in the Conejo Valley, praying that God would do mighty things in and through us, that he would heal hearts, that he would bind up wounds, that he would save souls, that he would do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And I want to invite you to be a part of this. One, to pray for our church, but two, for some of you, you're not good at praying. And can I tell you a little secret? There's only one way to get good at praying, and that's by praying. I know, it's shocking. You're like, but could I read a book? Could I listen to a podcast? Is there an Instagram thing I could, you know? No, you pray. The only way you get good at prayer is by praying, and one of the best ways to get good at praying is to set aside an hour to do it. So here's what I'm gonna challenge you to do. Hundreds of people have signed up for this, including some of you already. You can sign up for one hour of the week, 168 hours in a week. You pick one, and you choose to pray during that time. We did this as a church about 10 years ago in 2012. My hour was 3 a.m. on Thursdays. That was 10 years ago. I can no longer do 3 a.m. Thursdays, all right? I have now picked my night. I am Monday nights at 10 p.m. And so here's what I'm going to do. 52 times next year, Monday nights, 10 p.m., I'm going to walk out my front door. I'm going to do a prayer walk around my neighborhood one hour. And I want to invite you to do the same. I want to invite you to join the 24 hours of prayer. If you join, uh, the way you do it, we have, we're going to have cards back on the prayer wall after the service. Even during the second set, you can go back there as we worship. You grab this card. You fill out your name. You pick a time. Just give us a day. Give us an hour. And then we will email you every day before your day comes to give you prayer prompts, to give you advice, to give you tips on prayer, to give you things to pray about. But I want to encourage you to learn to pray in 2023. Because if, if your purpose is found in prayer... Why in the world wouldn't you take up that challenge? Like if God's going to do something awesome through you through prayer, like why in the world would you leave that on the table? I want this room to be a room of prayer. And so let's be that people. Go to the, th go to the prayer wall right after we're done here. To pick a time, pick an hour, commit to it. We'll be in touch with resources. That's number one. Number two, in 2021, learn to fast. Learn to fast. Uh, we in this ministry talk about fasting all the time. In fact, for the last few years, we've started the year with 21 days of prayer and fasting. And here's what I want you to know. That doesn't mean you don't eat for 21 days. You're like, I could never do that. I, could, I, don't, I don't know. Like, it's possible, actually. Jesus did it. A lot of people have done it. But here's the deal. It's 21 days of prayer and fasting. We'll start that in January. 
And what will happen is you'll just, we're just asking everyone to fast something during those 21 days. You might fast one day. You might fast one meal. You want, might fast from certain things in your life. There's all sorts of things you can do. But fasting is not some sort of side dish to the Christian faith. Like every time we see God moving in power in Scripture, including in Jesus himself, he fasts. And so we're going to talk about fasting and what it is and what it isn't. If you've never fasted before, I think you're a perfect candidate for our 21 days of fasting. I would love for you to lean in. That's coming up in January. But listen, Anna, here's what, here's what she does. Anna leans into fasting. She leans into prayer. And through that, God reveals to her her purpose. In verse 38, it says this. It says, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God. So look at this, like 62 years waiting 15, she's married. 22, she's widowed. 62 years later, she's 84 years old. Six decades praying, fasting, worshiping, seeking the Lord, seeking after God, being a prophet, doing everything God had called her toward. You wonder if at any point in time she just kind of got like, is this wasted time? Am I just wasting my time waiting for God to do something? But here's what I want you to know. Faithfulness is never wasted. It is never wasted. Like in whatever season you're in, whatever God is doing in your life, if you feel like you're stalled out and not quite where you want to be yet and you haven't seen God move through in power yet, I want you to know it is never wasted time to be faithful to what God has for you. You know, people ask me from time to time, especially young adults, about what it means to wait on the Lord. This is a phrase we see in scripture, to wait on the Lord. Like if you're single and you want to be married, I want you to wait on the Lord. If you're wanting your career to take off and really move, but it's not doing that yet, wait on the Lord. If you feel like there's something you just haven't been able to accomplish or overcome or get to in your life, some dream God's put on your heart, you're just not there yet, I want you to wait on the Lord. And here's what that phrase means. I want to define it this way tonight. I want you to know that waiting is just another word for the current assignment. That's what waiting is. Waiting is you accomplishing the current assignment before the next one comes. And so often what Christians think is to wait on the Lord is to sit around passively just hoping God's going to show up and just wait and do nothing until the next season when God's going to do something. So you're single and you're like, oh, I'll just sit around waiting for the right guy to come through. I'll just sit around waiting for the perfect girl to just text me out of nowhere and we'll be married, right? Like that's what you're waiting on. That's not what waiting on the Lord is. Waiting on the Lord is being faithful with the current assignment because you know the next one's coming and you're going to be faithful in this moment. It's like this. So uh, my wife and I for Thanksgiving took our kids out to Nashville, Tennessee, and we did a whole week in Nashville. Now, um, it was a blast. It was so much fun. But I need to know um, one of the biggest struggles for the young parent in, in your life is flying on the plane with any young people. Like little humans do not do well on planes. When you have three little humans on planes, it is a disaster. And that's a generous way to put it, okay? Like, train wreck. Okay, so we're on the plane, and we got, we're kind of situated this way. I'm sitting on one side of the plane of the aisle of the Southwest plane, because that's what we can afford. Um, and so we're sitting on the Southwest plane, and I've got my five-year-old and my two-year-old, and we've got little iPads for them, which is genius, and they're just watching TV the whole time, which is going to melt their brains, but it's fine, no big deal. So we're sitting there. On the other side of the aisle, you got the aisle, and then you got my wife, and she's got our nine-month-old, who's like, that's the hardest age, because they can't really do anything, but they're not like sleepy little one-month-olds, so she's just kind of wiggling around the whole time. So you got my wife holding on the lap, and then we hear the announcement, no parent wants to hear on the plane, here's the announcement, this is going to be an entirely full flight, not a single seat open, which is terrible. Because as parents with young children, what we assume is if there are any open seats, it will be next to us because no one wants to sit next to babies, right? But we hear, no, no, it's totally full. 
So people are filing in, and then suddenly this poor couple, it's like the last seats are available right next to this baby, which is just like the worst luck of the draw. And they come in, and and here's what's so in our minds. In our minds, we're like, they're going to be so mad about sitting next to this little baby. She's going to cry. She's going to fuss. She's not really going to know what to do. They're going to be so frustrated. And here was the coolest thing in the world. Five-hour flight from Nashville to LAX. This couple spent the entire five hours entertaining my nine-month-old. They spent the entire flight playing peekaboo with her, making her laugh, making her giggle, like looking at her, smiling at her. Like you think about this couple, they didn't have to do that. They got on the plane and they could have just like shut their eyes, put in their headphones and been in their own little world and ignored this little human next to them. They could have done what so many Christians want to do, just sit and do nothing until the plane gets to the destination and they get to go to the next thing. But you know what they did? They were faithful with the assignment in front of them. They were there and they said, I have a purpose for being on this plane. It's not just to wait for it to be over. It is to engage with what is in front of me. And I want you to know if you are waiting on God to do something in your life, you have a purpose now, and that is to complete the assignment God has given to you. Like, I want you to do this. Whatever thing is in your life that you're waiting for and you think, I'll be faithful to God once that thing comes, I want you to know that God wants you to be faithful now. Not when you get there, not when you arrive. Waiting on the Lord is being faithful now because then God shows up later. Listen, waiting on the Lord is not passively longing for the next assignment. And for some of you, you're just kind of waiting on that next thing. Like, maybe God will show up and do some next big thing. Listen, waiting on the Lord is actively completing the current assignment. That's what you are called to do. Why? Because Jesus gives this principle in Luke 16. He says, whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. In other words, do you want God to trust you with a big, new, wonderful assignment in your life? Do you want him to give you that thing you're wanting and longing for? Be faithful now, because those who are faithful in little things, God will trust with much bigger things. It goes on this way, and it says, Anna sees Jesus and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. You think about this woman, here's the summary of her life. She's been alive for 84 years. She was married for only seven of them. For 62 of those years, she was a widow. She prays, she worships, she fasts all the time. All of this has been leading to one point where God has an assignment for her to be faithful in this season, to minister to his people, to fast and to pray and to worship and to be a prophet in the temple. All of this has she been doing. Why? To this one big climax, this one big moment of her life where Anna gets to see Jesus face to face. This is the climax of her life. This is the purpose that God has been leading everything toward. She gets to see Jesus face to face. Now now listen, for some of you, you're like, she lost her husband, she spent six decades praying, fasting, seeking the Lord, and all she got to see was a little baby? Like, that's it? Like, that's all she got to see? The big climax of her life wasn't some monumental moment. She didn't get crowned queen. She didn't get a billion dollars. She just got to see a baby in a temple for a few seconds? And you're going, that's the climax of her life? And if that's your thought, I want you to know it's understandable. It just reveals that we don't quite understand what the goodness and the hope of heaven is. Because I want you to know that Anna sees God's face. She sees him face to face. That everything she's been waiting for, all the grief she's gone through, the whole journey that she's had to experience, leads up until a moment where she sees the Lord Jesus face to face. And child of God, I want you to know that that is your story too. I want you to know that everything you've gone through and everything you've lost and everything you've dealt with and all the pain and all the frustration and all the disappointment and all the plans that have collapsed will one day result in what Revelation 22, chapter 22 and verse 4 says this. It says, we, there will come a day where there is no longer any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. He will see his face 
and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Here's what I want you to know. Everything you're longing for, everything you're hoping for, everything you're desiring for one day will come to completion when you see God face to face in heaven. I want you to know whatever it is you want next, whatever it is you're longing for, whatever else you're desiring for won't actually satisfy you. Like if you are single right now, I want you to know that you could be married two years from now and it will not satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. I want you to know you could have babies five years from now. And it could be adorable and cute and the best things in your life, it will not satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. You get the job you always wanted, the career you always longed for, the house you always wanted, the coolest car, the best clothes, the biggest success. You could have everything you wanted and you will still be longing for more. You know why? Because God has wired you to long for one thing. And that's the thing Anna got to see, the face of Jesus. You will never be satisfied until you saw what Anna saw. Listen, when Anna saw Jesus, she got a taste of heaven. She got a taste of heaven. And that's a beautiful thing to see in the story. This woman who's gone through great loss and great pain, great disappointment, her plans have fallen apart. The climax of her life is that she sees Jesus face to face, and that is enough for her. And here's what I want you to know tonight. Whatever you're longing for, Whatever you're desiring, whatever that thing is that hasn't materialized in your life, whatever that thing is that you feel pain and disappointment around, I want you to know you will never be fully satisfied until you are in heaven and see God face to face. But you want to know what's so cool? (laughs) The point of tonight's sermon is not like, um, so you're just going to be kind of bummed out till heaven, right? That would be a terrible sermon. (laughs) It would be like, so good luck, right? Because here's the cool thing, when, when Anna sees Jesus face to face, she gets a taste of heaven. But do you know when we get a taste of heaven? I, I want you to know that every time we gather in the space for worship, we get a taste of heaven. Like, that's what we do. So like, like, like right now, like our band, make, make your way up, like worship band and, and, and your crew. I, I want you to know, like, as we worship tonight, like, this is just a taste, a foretaste, like just a small little smore, morsel of what heaven's going to be like. Anna sees Jesus face to face, and this is the fulfillment of all of these deep longings of her soul. And when we're in this place and you're moved by the Spirit, and during worship, God just meets you in power, I want you to know that's not just some random emotion. It's not just some silly little part of your life. It is a foretaste of what eternity is going to feel like. So like the moments in my life, even in this room, where I have been worshiping, and I just feel like my body is just caught up in something so much bigger than me. There's something so overwhelming and so peaceful and so joyful. That is the permanent state of the believer in heaven. That's your future. And so this longing inside of you is not going to be fulfilled by a husband or by a wife or by children or by career. It'll only be fulfilled by Jesus. And you get a taste of that every time we gather in this room. Why do we think it's so important to get here on Thursday nights, to gather as a church? Why is it so important to be a part of this? Because we get a foretaste of heaven and it keeps us going once more. So that's what we're going to do tonight. And here's what I'm going to ask everyone in the room to do. Would you stand with me right now? And we're going to close by singing a few songs here. Um, And listen to me, if you've heard me preach long enough, you know, I don't do this. Um. But like this week, I was just writing, and I, I don't know if these words are for anyone, and maybe they're for no one. Um, but here's the invitation as we stand and sing tonight. I want you to know your future is with the Father. 
Like if you know Jesus and the blood of Jesus has redeemed you, he is your father, you are his son, that is your future, you are running into the arms of God, and there will come a day where you do not walk by faith, but you walk by sight, and you see him face to face. Your future is with the father. I want you to know your hope is in the son. Your hope is not in your connections, your ability, how intelligent you are, your education. Your hope is not in how you look or the people you know. Your hope is in the son, Jesus, who went into the grave. He died and he rose again and you can trust in him because the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. I want you to know that your power comes through the spirit. The power to push through this season where you feel lonely or frustrated or let down. The power in this season where you just feel like you don't have enough, where you're just dragging, where you're on fumes. I want you to know that the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. Your hope is in the Son. Your future is in the Father. Your hope is in the Son. Your power comes to the Spirit. So what are we going to do tonight? We're going to praise God Almighty. Three in one. There will come a day where you will see Him face to face. And the deepest longings and the deepest hurts of your life will be healed and fulfilled and made right and made whole now and forevermore. And until that moment, we worship in this place and we experience a taste of heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thanks for the story of Anna. Um, God, thanks for her life. Thanks for her witness. Thanks for the ability she had to be faithful in prayer and in fasting and in worshiping, even in the worst thing life has to offer, even in the hardest moment of loss. She shows us what faithfulness looks like. Help us, God, to be faithful like her. Help us to worship. God, I want to boldly ask tonight for anyone who's worn out, who's exhausted, who's worn down, who feels like they're just at the end of their rope. God, may you meet them in power here tonight. God, we beg you, we ask you for a taste of heaven, for a move of your spirit. God, meet us in worship, we pray, and we pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said...